Well, you made it. We made it. In January of last year, we began, or January of this year, we began by considering the prologue to the book of John. And now, 12 months later, here we are in the final chapter. And in some ways, we could look at, there's, a lot, there's been a lot of debate as to when the book of John actually finished. Was it in the last week's chapter that Ermal graciously covered for us, fighting through his cough while I was helping out in Kids Connection? Thank you, Ermal. Or is it this one, the epilogue, this last part? And, I, and uh, so today we're going to look here, and let me just catch us up. If you remember, John kind of has walked us through Jesus' life. He, he highlighted his birth. He didn't really tell us much about how Jesus was born, just that he was. He was uh, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. He was the light shining in darkness. And then we began to watch his ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist, telling people about him, the calling of the disciples, all of the signs that Jesus did, and then all of his controversy, all of the, uh, the conversations and the challenges that Jesus had with the religious leaders, leading us all the way up to what we talked about over the last couple of weeks. And in the timeline of what the disciples are experiencing, we could say that the last few weeks in their lives have been quite a whirlwind. So let's just kind of put ourselves in their place for just a quick moment. You see, roughly two weeks ago in the disciples' timeline, they experienced a day of great joy. That was the triumphal entry. That was the day that thousands of people were walking with Jesus into Jerusalem. That was the day that they laid down their palm branches and put their coats on the road so that Jesus didn't have to go on the dirt. And he was on a donkey. And, and man, it was a glorious time. And they thought, yes, the king has come only to experience a few days later a time of intimate or a time of intimacy with Jesus as Jesus spent a great deal of time and John records nearly a third of his book is one night of Jesus with his disciples as he tells them about what's going to happen. He tells them about the Holy Spirit. He communicates to them all these things and then he takes off his outer garment and in a sign of humility and shame, washes their feet. Oh man, what, what joy the disciples would have had in that moment. And then that very same night, just a couple of hours later, going from joy to despair, as they go with Jesus out to the garden and, and they watch him get betrayed and arrested. And as they scatter, and some of them watch from a distance. In fact, we learn that John is really the only one that got to see Jesus' trials up close. We also get to see the denial that Peter gave to Jesus, or not gave to him, the way that Jesus, Peter denied Jesus. The despair of his crucifixion and his death. All that joy, imagine that, in one week, the joy of the triumphal entry and that intimacy of Maundy Thursday or the night before his crucifixion, only to see it all dashed in one day. Then three days later, Jesus comes back alive. He rises from the grave on Sunday morning. And that's why we worship on Sunday. That's why we worship on a day like today. And then Jesus appears not only at the tomb to a couple of folks who were there, but then he goes and meets with the disciples individually, not in, you know, in a, a group of them in a room, reveals himself to them, says, yes, it's me. Now go share the gospel. And then eight days later, he comes back and meets up with them again because as you may remember from last week, Thomas kind of doubted. He's like, he's got, 
He's got 10 eyewitnesses, right? And 10 eyewitnesses said, we saw Jesus. We shook hands with him. We hugged him. We saw him. He's alive. And Thomas is like, no, 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 no. Unless I see him, put my hands, my finger in his hands and my hand in his side where the spear was, I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus comes back and shows himself again and says, Thomas, don't doubt, but believe. And then he sends them off. He says, go and be my witnesses. And then John kind of concludes everything saying, hey, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But what's next? Jesus sent them. John only records a very little bit in, in John 21, John chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus sent his disciples onto Galilee. And so that's where chapter 21 picks up. And we could in some ways call this John's epilogue. If you have your Bibles and want to open to John 21, We'll be covering the, almost all, all the, the whole passage. If you don't have your own Bible, the words will be on the screen, or you can look at number 769 in the Pew Bible. But John is kind of wrapping up everything. He's tying up a couple of loose ends. It's almost like that part of a movie after, after the climax has happened, the big conflict is there, the resolution, and then you get, like in all the Marvel movies, if you sit long enough through the credits, you find out what's coming next. You get that little, ah. Uh, only to provide a little more suspense. And this is sort of that, that little extra movie that you get during the credits of a Marvel movie. And so here in this chapter, I want us to really consider three things. And these are the outline, the points in your outline, so you can cheat and fill it in right here if you want. But essentially, one of the things that we see in this passage is the blessing of working Jesus' way. We're also going to look at the beauty of restoration and then finally the individuality of ministry assignments. And so if you have your copy of God's Word and want to follow along and want to use the outline in your bulletin, you can do that. But let's begin by looking at the first 14 verses where we see the blessing of working Jesus' way. So here's the chapter opens. We find that the disciples are in Galilee and Peter, who's from that region, decides to go fishing. And he tells, tells the other guys, hey, I'm going fishing. And they're like, okay, I'm coming with you. Six other guys come along with Peter. How's that for leadership? And it may have been that they had a little bit of downtime. It may have been that because of what Mark tells us, that they, had, they knew they had an appointment with Jesus in Galilee. So maybe they were there a little early. Some people want to give Peter a hard time about this and really the other disciples like they had given up on the mission that God had given them, that Jesus had given them. They had gone back to work, but we don't know. They may have had downtime. They, you know, Peter, we know that he was one of the only guys who was married. So maybe he just had some family obligations he had to think through. That big catch of fish that Jesus provided a couple years earlier, that nest, nest egg, that windfall was gone. Maybe he just had to go get some more money so his wife could hold things down at home. Who knows? But as they experienced a few years earlier, we find that their night of fishing was fruitless. Look at chapter 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And, he, and they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. And that night they caught nothing. Imagine for a moment, being where they are. The emotional roller coaster of the last couple of weeks, 
the last three years of ministry on the road being as grueling as that may have been, the unknowns of the future. After all, Jesus has hinted that he's going back to the Father, so he's not going to be there forever, even though he rose from the dead. In many ways, everything is in turmoil. So if we, like them, were to go back for a few minutes, maybe we go back to the very thing we know so well, that thing that brings us a little sense of calm, that thing that brings us a little sense of home. Maybe for you, that's hunting. That thrill of going out and just waiting in the cold for hours on end for something to come by. Maybe it's a video game. You know, you, you lose your mind in the screen for a little while and live in a world that's not your own. Maybe it's a book, just that escape, that opportunity, just I see some heads nodding and amen, that opportunity just to enjoy this other story that's not your own. Or maybe it's a movie. Maybe you, like me, have a more difficult time with fictional books, and so you lose yourself in a movie. You think, oh, just zone out, fall into a nice couch nap. Or maybe you're a little more productive and you get into a craft or a hobby <laughs> with some deviousness in mind. Or maybe none of that applies to you, and you just go back and you lose yourself in work because work feels comfortable. It feels like, oh. And we may feel like that we need space to catch our breath. And we do, in some ways, catch our breath in these ways. And there may be other ways that we try to find a sense of home, a sense of peace. Maybe that's what the disciples were looking at. But ideally, that's what a Sabbath is for. That's what a day of rest is for, a day to reset and just pause. But as we go back to those familiar activities, we may find, like the disciples, that it's fruitless. The deer are nowhere to be found, no matter how long you wait or how far you look. The game is mired in useless ads, and you, you can't get past that level, no matter how hard you try. The book and the movie feel tired and repetitive. The craft project is not coming together the way you hoped it would, and work just doesn't have the same fulfillment that it did before. We may find, like the disciples, that none of our attempts to produce the outcome that none of our attempts produce the outcome that we hoped for or expected. The emotional satisfaction and the rejuvenation that we desired is absent, and the spiritual perspective that we longed for is more foggy than ever. I wonder if that's how we respond. I wonder if that's what the disciples were experiencing that night that they went fishing. But then John continues in John chapter 21, verse 4. He says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they said to him, no. He is, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And they quickly learned that this catch was abundant. John tells us they caught 153 large fish and realized 
that this shorebound fishing consultant was none other than Jesus. And then once they finally make it ashore, Jesus invites them to bring some of their catch and join him for breakfast. But I want us to think just for a few moments about the principle or this, uh, this principle or this idea. You see, Peter and, and the disciples, they're not looking for Jesus while they're fishing. And it seemed that they weren't seeking God's guidance, but Jesus simply broke through. He interrupted their fruitless work. And once Jesus got their attention, they obeyed him and everything changed. Then I wonder how often we feel like that. How often do we toil and worry our way, never really giving God the time of day or a whisper of a prayer? And then God interrupts our efforts. Sadly, he might interrupt in some tragic ways. Maybe, it's a, maybe it is a tragedy. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's an accident of some sort. He might even be a little more subtle and get our attention in less drastic means. Maybe it's that still small voice in, of the spirit that's giving you a little sense of pause. Oh, I better pay attention to this. It may be something said by a friend. The point is that when he interrupts, how will we respond? Will we obey his word like the disciples did or will we ignore it and keep trying to do things our own way, thinking we know best? And I wish I could tell you exactly what to do. Your situation is different than mine. Our circumstances are vastly different from that of the disciples. But what is the same is that we serve the same God and he is there for our good. He's working for our flourishing. And obedience for us may be as simple like it was for the disciples as casting the net on the other side, just doing one, making one small change at the right time inspired by God. It may be more challenging or complicated, but in the very least, I think obedience looks like fellowship. After all, Jesus in John 12, 21, 12 said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and eat with me. And oh, that we would spend time with Jesus in his word. Oh, that we would just learn what it means to feast with him. I wish I, I, I there are so many times I wish my walk with the Lord was as delightful as that, just enjoying, sitting, resting in him. Oh, that we would feast with him in prayer and in worship. But I want to encourage you, friend, if you're far from Jesus, if you're just checking him out, come and fellowship with him. Join with him in sweet communion. John has been calling you to believe and this belief, this faith is the table upon which this meal with Jesus is set. Sometimes we like to think, well, if I'm going to go to church, let me perform a bit and then God will like me. Then God will accept me. But we find religious activity is as fruitless as the disciples' fishing expedition. We must enter in by faith and obey his call to repent and believe. In fact, John communicated that to us Several chapters earlier, in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
he is sending an invitation. We can learn from the disciples' encounter here that there is blessing in working Jesus' way. But I think there's a second really cool principle that we see in this encounter, and that is the beauty of restoration. This is the part of the passage that Jordan read earlier. If you remember just a couple weeks earlier in the disciples' timeline, just a few weeks ago as we've been studying the book of John, on the night that Jesus was arrested, we find Peter warming himself around a charcoal fire surrounded by servants, and he's accosted with a couple of questions. In John 18, 17 to 18, it says, that The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said to him, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Peter ended up denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in one cold night. And it must have been cold because John in that chapter brings up the fact that Peter is around this fire. He brings it up twice. He wants us to know that it was cold and they had to be around this thing. In fact, one of the things I... I, I got to experience last year when, when I went to the Middle East, one thing that I hope um, Lee and Zach get to experience is that time around the fire, that time of fellowship, you just get into conversations with folks. And it became a beautiful time for us last year to share the gospel. But obviously in this time for Peter, it was a time for him to be afraid and a time for him to deny Jesus. But here we are a couple weeks later on the shore of Galilee, and John tells us we find another charcoal fire in verse 9. And instead of being tended by servants, we find that this fire is tended by our Savior. And after Jesus and the disciples finished eating, Jesus singles out Peter. John 21, 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice what he calls Peter. We've seen Peter introduced as Peter, and that's his name, Peter, for most of the book. But Peter was not his given name. His given name was Simon. Peter's name, the name Peter, Petros, means rock. And several commentators noted that Peter failed to live up to that name. In fact, the night that he betrayed Jesus... Peter asked Jesus, he said, Lord, why can't I follow you? This is John 13, 37. I will lay down my life for you. And that very night, he denied Jesus three times. But Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, now that you've not lived up to your name, Peter, may you live up to it again. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? kind of begs the question, what are the these that Jesus is talking about? Maybe it's the other disciples. Maybe it's just the few who are present. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's the cares of the Do you love me more than that stuff? And we don't know, really know and can't know this side of heaven, but I think what we do know is that Jesus is asking Peter, am I your true first love? Am I your chief love and highest priority? To which Peter replies in 21.15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Then feed my lambs. And it's interesting, just as 
Peter denied Jesus three times. So here Jesus asks Peter the same basic question three times. Look at verses 16 and 17. And he, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, you may have heard this. There's been a lot made over the Greek words that are used in this passage. And all the commentators that I looked at brought up this point in a very interesting way. You see, one of the things that's happening when Jesus initially asked the question to Peter, he's saying, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word, John writes down the word agape, which means unconditional or selfless love. So Jesus says, Simon, do you agape me? To which Peter replies, you would expect a mirrored response, right? But no, Peter's response was, you know that I phileo you. I love you like a brother. I love you like a friend. It's a different kind of love. And so the first two times Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And finally, the third time, Jesus seems to acquiesce and say, do you phileo me? But one of the things that the disciples or that, that the commentators point out is that agape and phileo in many ways were, were common. They were interchangeable in, in many literary circles. The other challenge we run into is that Jesus and Peter were talking in Aramaic, and Aramaic doesn't have all that range of meaning. So John may have just been using different words for variety. After all, when you're writing a letter, you don't want to use that same word over and over again, right? So we could look at it as Jesus settling to Peter's phileo love. Is Jesus calling him to agape him? Yeah, probably. But I think it's best that we not make too much of a big deal about it. After all, he uses a mixture of words, feed and tend my sheep and lamb. So you have that whole variety going on throughout this passage. But setting aside the linguistic discussions, what's the point? Jesus in this passage restores Peter. So here he is, he's around another charcoal fire and he asks three questions in almost direct response to the three denials that, that Peter gave on Jesus' behalf. Did Jesus have to do it that way? I don't think so. He could have done it once and that would have been enough. But I think my guess is in the back of Peter's mind, he would have heard over and over again, oh man, I screwed up, I messed up. I think Peter needed it. Peter needed to know that Jesus had not given up on him, that Jesus had not canceled him. You see, Jesus was intentional about restoring Peter. Jesus made a point to communicate directly to Peter. You see, in the last week and a half or two, Jesus and Peter had been in the same room a couple of times with all the other disciples. And yet here, around this fire on the shores of Galilee, Jesus singles Peter out. He specifically worked to restore Peter. And I wonder how often our lives or in the church are we quick to cancel and slow to restore? 
Maybe we've not intentionally canceled people or maybe we've simply incidentally been incidental in restoration. Maybe someone's come into your mind. I know I have a few on mine. Some in our fellowship who've drifted. Some who've fallen into sin or vices. Some who've not been able to overcome a fear of COVID. We just let them go. What are we individually and collectively doing to restore those Peters in our midst? But also, I want us to think briefly about our salvation. You see, Jesus was intentional. He intentionally left the glories of heaven. And that's what Christmas is all about. He left the glories of heaven to, be, to take on flesh like us and then allowed himself to be betrayed and killed for our sake only to rise three days later. Jesus intentionally came to restore that sin, the fellowship that sin broke. Jesus was intentional with us. Will we be intentional with those with whom we've broken fellowship with? But in addition to being intentional about restoring Peter, Jesus was personal in Peter's restoration. You see, so far in, in John's gospel, we've seen three times that Jesus appeared before his disciples. And as I said, Peter was present each of those times. And instead of simply looking over the failure of the past, Jesus got personal with Peter. It, it, it's as though he, he welcomed him. He, he talked to him. He had conversations among the big group and said, hey, Peter, you're cool. But no, he got personal with him because he, Peter had a specific role to play. Peter was important in Jesus' plan. And I think the same is true in our lives. We could send out bulk emails or a little text message here and there to try to bring some semblance of restoration, but I think Jesus' example is good here and an encouragement for us. Yeah, we should send a text. We should write a note. We should pick up the phone and call. We should stop by. We should get personal about restoration. And I know I've not been as personal in, in, in seeking to intentionally restore people but think about this. For those of us who, are, who have covenanted together as members, this is one of the things we covenanted together to do. We further agree to never forsake the assembling of ourselves, to watch over one another in brotherly love, to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require, to remember each other in prayer, to nurture and encourage those who at any time come under our care, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? I know for me, I haven't been living up to that. But I think there's an extension here as we think about not only in our own fellowship, there's the part where we need to look at our salvation. You see, Jesus is personal with your salvation. This call from the Holy Spirit 
There, this is a call from the Holy Spirit that you respond to. This is not something your parents can do. They can and should train you in the ways of the Lord and all that Scripture has for us. But Jesus calls you personally by his word, by his spirit, through the voices of his people. Have you responded? Will you respond? Not only do we see that Jesus was intentional and personal in restoring Peter, but finally we see that Jesus was thorough in Peter's restoration. Jesus seemed to address Peter's betrayal point by point. As I said, three times Peter denied. Three times Jesus asked for Peter's devotion. Three times Peter confirmed his devotions. And three times Jesus affirmed an important role for him to do. And one of the things that we can happen when we leave restoration incomplete is that we leave room for drama. We leave room for drama. Michael Crawford, who's the current executive director of the BCMD, said recently at a meeting, he said, drama is an open, unrepentant commitment to dysfunctional relationships. Drama is an open and unrepentant commitment to dysfunctional relationships. And I think that if Jesus had left Peter's restoration to one statement or one question, then Peter might have always questioned his worth or value. But Jesus was complete. He left no room for the drama of insecurity. He left no room for the drama of self-loathing. He left no room for the drama of doubt and neither should we. You see, in the work that Jesus did on the cross, he, thoroughly, he also thoroughly fulfilled all that was required for you and me to be in a relationship with God. He thoroughly paid for the debt of our sin. He thoroughly restored all that our sinful nature and our will, willful rebellion broke. He did it. And all that is left for us to do is to receive his free gift of eternal life, to believe, and then to walk in devotion with him. He left no room for the drama of letting you and me wonder if we've done enough because he did it all. He left no room for us to wonder if we are loved. We are. You are he left no room for the drama of us wondering if our sins are covered. It is covered. They are covered fully. But beyond the cross, inside of the body of Christ, I want to encourage us in restoring a brother, restoring a brother or sister needs to be intentional and personal, but it also needs to be thorough. One meeting or one text may not accomplish all that restoration requires. It may take time to pray, to encourage, to talk, to pray, to invite, to, to pray, to reassure, to pray. We can't give up. Let us repent of where we've played the part in the drama of division and the work and work toward thoroughly restoring one another to proper fellowship with Christ and with his church. So far, we've seen in John's epilogue the blessing of working Jesus' way and the beauty of restoration. And finally, we come to the individuality of, of assignments. After restoring Peter, Jesus tells him some of the challenges that are before him. And this is, oh, what an encouraging statement this is. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And it seems that Peter would have some time for ministry, but eventually he would face a difficult death, the crucifixion. And I'm sure while this was a bit disconcerting for Peter, he at least knew what was in front of him, but it caused him to question what's happening around him. You see, I think right at that point when when Jesus says, follow me, I think he's basically saying, hey, let's go for a walk. Because as you read down in the text, look at verses 20 and 22. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? If I'm going to die on the cross, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus had given Peter the ministry of shepherding to tend and feed Jesus' sheep. John had been given a different ministry And Peter needed to respect that. Bruce Milne, in his commentary, summarized it this way. He said, Peter would be the shepherd, John the seer, Peter the preacher, John the penman, Peter the foundational witness, John the faithful writer. Peter would die in agony and the passion of martyrdom. John would live on to great age and pass away in quiet serenity. How many of us would prefer to be John rather than Peter at that point? Right, And yet, as it pertains to us, it can be easy to look at some areas of the Christian life and feel a sense of jealousy or even covetousness when we compare our lives to others. When we look at our circumstances versus theirs, oh man, my life is so much more difficult than theirs. Why can't I have their life? Right? Or the suffering that we've faced or the calling that God has played. Why, God, why can't I have that person's calling? Why can't I have that person's gifting? where we look at our strengths and weaknesses. And as Jesus communicates to Peter, the important element is that we follow him. Whatever the calling God places on us, we follow him. It's almost like we need to put some blinders on. We follow him through times of blessing and bounty, follow him in times of trial, follow him in sickness, follow him in success. We follow him until he returns and we get to be with him for eternity. So as we close, let me just ask us a couple of questions. And I say us because truly as I've been working on this, this this has weighed heavy on me this week. Where do we need to repent of working our own way rather than Jesus' way? How often can we get caught up just seeing what's in front of us our way rather than submitting that to Christ? Where do we need to be intentional, personal, and thorough in restoring other people? Where do we need to put the blinders on and follow Jesus on the path that he has ordained for us? And then finally, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, have you repented of your sin 
and trusted in Jesus' restoring work because he did that for you. The call is there. Repent and believe. Let's pray.